Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. So today we're going to talk to you about crime fighting critters, which is a very broad topic. So we wanted to talk about animals in true crime and kind of how that interacts. I know that when we first talked about this in my head, I was like, oh, we're going to talk about like animals who attack people to save their owners. And then there was so much other stuff that I didn't even realize was working behind the scenes. And I don't want to give anything away until we started. My mind was blown about some of this. But did you think we were going to like go this route when you first started your research? Well, what prompted my research is I saw an article about how the leg of a bug solved a crime. And I was like, what? And I guess someone had gotten murdered and they found, I want to say it was like a grasshopper with them. And then the killer's pant cuff had the leg of the grasshopper. And I was like, that's a thing. I wonder if there's more. So I kind of had a little bit of background knowledge of the animals helping to solve a crime. But also, we're both very big animal people. So anytime we can talk about animals, we're going to take that. Absolutely. And also, so okay, so two things. First off, Amanda, what pets do you have? This feels crucial. I have two dogs. One is Toby and one is Kimber. I have two cats, Loki and Mara. I have a turtle named Filbert and a tortoise named Donatello. But we found out it was a girl, so we just call her Donnie now. (laughs) I love it. Okay, so I have five cats. I'm going to tell you all their names because you need to know. Lenore Nimoy, Harry P. Winston, the P stands for Pudgems. Ollie, I call her Olivia Mutant John or Olivia (laughs) Benson, depending on the day and what she's doing. Noah, we call him No-No though. And then Spicy Pickle, but she's also known as Pickleita Senorita Pecan Pie when she's being very sweet or Rasul, which is Russian for pickle, if she's being spicy. Again, feels necessary to share. And we also have a dog. She's a pet named Moo Pig. I love her. She's the sweetest dog. I love her and I'm obsessed with her. So, okay, well, that's one. And then the second thing, we've only included stories where the animal is alive at the end of it. Except for the one I just mentioned where the grasshopper lost its life. Yeah, and we didn't, <laughs> we were like building our outline and I was like, it's not alive. We don't get to conclude it in the later parts because no dead animals going forward. That's a bug. I feel less love towards it and I don't feel bad about that. Lindsay has a thing for bugs though. In Maryland, it's almost cicada season, which is every 17 years. I share Google calendars with some of my best friends and I have put on everyone's calendar cicadas in all caps for like 150 days just so that everyone can lower their expectations of me leaving my house during this time. And I put it on there before (laughs) like coronavirus world because I was like, I'm not leaving the house unless necessary during this time. I don't fuck with cicadas like they were here 17 years ago and they like flew into my hair and would like fly at me and fly up under my glasses and I'm not having it. I've never had that happen. Yeah. That sounds horrific. You have unnecessary heat. I have every 17 years a plague is unleashed. Well, we have we have bugs that come out ever so often, too, though. We have the Apache cicada. Oh, yeah. It's a mess. But also, instead of just like pest bugs that suck, we have like mutant bugs that want to kill you. Like what? Okay, so off topic, but sort of on topic because we're talking about creatures, right? 
I kind of live in the desert, right? So a couple years after we moved out here, there was a, this is the best way I'm going to describe it, a scorpion spider hybrid. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, it was the worst thing that's ever existed. Did it have like eight little stingers? This, I found out what it was after I called a bunch of exterminators to come and rid my house from this evil. But it's called a wind scorpion or a camel spider. And it has eight legs. That's why I said it was like a scorpion spider hybrid. And it has like a scary mouth, has like spider legs. It's like this big. Showing Lindsay, it's a couple inches big. And I think a piece of me died that night that it was found because I didn't think that something that horrible could exist. No. I kind of want to show her it, but I feel like then she'll turn off her computer. Please don't. I'm a good woman. I can't handle that. Oh, and I was going to say, I saw my first live scorpion this last year, and I'm not even joking. It's not even an exaggeration. I looked up how much my house would go on the market because I wanted to sell it like that night. She did. And Amanda, I'm just saying you could move to Maryland. I've not encountered a scorpion here or that abomination you just mentioned. But also, I've never had a cicada try to go under my glasses. It's once every 17 years. So you win some, you lose some. Amanda, it's like a casual, like 110 degrees in your summertime. I know. I also can't walk in snow, though. Okay, then don't. You just don't leave your house. It snowed here. I barely did anything. I don't ever do anything. I'm assuming they want us to get around to this episode, though. But it's our show. We do what we want. Before we get into it, though. (laughs) One last thing. One last thing. A little bit of housekeeping. So we are trying to obviously grow our podcast. And for those that have listened to us, thank you so much. We appreciate you listening. And we love the feedback that we've received as well. Now, if you would take just a minute and rate us or review us on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, we would very much appreciate it. And we'll even send you a little gift. So for the first 20 people who do leave a review... Please screenshot it and send us your address. And also, if you've already left a review, we appreciate it. Go ahead and do that, too, because we'd love to send you a sticker. Yeah. And you can send it to us at drewcreepspod at gmail.com. Also, if you tag us in your photos of your stickers, once you get them, we'll repost them, too. So be sure to add us at truecreepspod on Instagram or truecreeps on Twitter. Or you can just do hashtag truecreeps. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. We're going to start with Binky the cat. So around 1230 a.m., there was a man at Cynthia Kunz's door, like banging on it and demanding that she let him in. And she didn't know who it was. So she was like, no. And he said, well, I've got to get in. They're trying to kill me. Scary. Terrifying, right? And her response was akin to, I don't know that you're not going to kill me, right? (laughs) Reasonable. Fair. And so he kept banging on the door. And so from how the story unfolds, I'm imagining that there's a window very close to the doorknob, as sometimes there is. He's like banging on the door and he's trying to reach through the window. So he pushes in the screen, right? And so Cynthia's on the phone with police, but she calls and they put her on hold. Oh my gosh. No, thank you. And so she's like freaking out, right? Like, <laughs> And so the man pushes the screen and he's reaching his arm in. And so here comes Binky out of nowhere and he like bites the guy and then runs off again. And the guy recoils, but then quickly puts his arm back in and is reaching in to try to turn the knob from the inside. Binky flew back into action and begins jumping on this man's arm. Binky was declawed. I do not support declawing because that is like removing a segment of the cat's finger. Anywho, Binky was declawed, so he couldn't claw. So he just bit him ferociously and kept biting him. This time he didn't let go. He was like just chomp, 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 chomp. So the guy like eventually pulled his hand back and then police came. And so they arrested Earl Scruggs, who had been going around the neighborhood for an hour or so trying to get into people's houses in this way. 
And also, cat bites are no joke. Yeah. Well, their mouths are disgusting, yeah. too. Like, that's one of the ones that you want to get checked out because it's very easy to get infected. Oh, yeah. What a good kitty. My boy cat is an asshole, but my girl cat's the sweetest thing in the world. Harry P. Winston is a demon and the cutest. He is the sweetest and the worst. He's done terrible things to me, but he is also like <laughs> the sweetest cat ever. When we go to bed, he curls up in my arm and puts his little head on the crook of my elbow and just goes to sleep. And that's where he wants to be. What a good boy. Every night, my baby boy. But a monster. So animal hair, after researching, is used in evidence a lot more frequently than I had initially thought. You're going to learn there's some perks to have an animal fur on your clothes. Yeah. So next time you go out, you're like, oh, this animal fur. No, it'll lead someone to your murderer. Yes. Wear it proudly. (laughs) So our next story is from 1994, and it's Snowball the Cat from Canada. So, Shirley Dugaway, her remains were found buried in a shallow grave. Shirley was a mother of five. So sad. She vanished in October of 1994, and a bag was found that contained a leather jacket and shoes. Both were stained with her blood. Now, here's where it gets a little interesting. There was cat hair in one of the pockets of the leather jacket. So Shirley's estranged husband, Douglas Beamish, had a white cat named Snowball. And I want to say one of the detectives remember seeing a white cat when they were talking to him. Brilliant. Right? And that's why it's very important to know everyone's animals, right? Yes. <laughs> because then you might be able to solve a murder. But the white cat hair was tested against Snowball and it was an exact match. So Beamish was convicted for her murder and sentenced to 18 years to life in June of 1996. Wow. And something I had read about animal hair is that typically dogs and cats groom themselves. So not only is it easy to match the hair to the animal, their DNA is left on the hair most of the time. Isn't there DNA in the hair too? Their mitochondrial DNA? Yeah, but I think their saliva can be matched. Like, because you can... Oh, I see what you're saying. So, like, the DNA is not just in their hair. It's also in the saliva. That's on the hair. Yeah. Yeah. DNA on DNA. Huh. So, our next story is about Layla the Weimaraner. And this story does involve the murder of a child. So, if you just want to skip it, we totally understand. In February of 2001, seven-year-old Danielle Nicole Van Dam disappeared sometime between the middle of the night and the early morning from her family home in San Diego. Oof. Damon, Danielle's father, put her to bed around 10 p.m. Danielle's mother, Brenda, was out with friends at a bar called Dad's. And while she was there, her neighbor, David Westfield, was there, too, which wasn't too surprising because Brenda had told Westfield that she would be there during a conversation they had had earlier that week. He said he was interested in one of her friends. So she's like, oh, we'll be at Dad's. So Brenda got home around 2 a.m. and she chatted with her friends for a bit. And Damon came down and talked to them, too. When they got there, Brenda noticed that the alarm system's light was flashing. She sent her friends to go find like which door or window was open. And two of her friends found the garage door was open. And this wasn't too alarming at the time because before they went to the bar, they had been smoking pot and one of them had opened that garage door to let the smoke out. They just figured that somebody didn't shut it after. And so also just like an interesting note is the Van Dams had reversed the lock on the interior garage door leading into the house. So if they chose, they could prevent their children from coming to the garage because they knew that they were going to be, you know, imbibing in some pot sometimes. And so they didn't want their children exposed to that. A person who was inside the garage could unlock the, the door without a key and enter the house. 
but you couldn't get into the garage without a key. See, I've seen too many shows talking about how people can enter homes and that that's just like a false sense of security having a garage door because they're pretty easy to break into from what I understand. I've never tried. Yeah, I don't live in a home with a garage and I never have. I'd rather have more house in my house than like a room for my car. She can park outside. I fill mine with Halloween stuff, so. There you go. But I also, like, I agree, like, it is a false sense of security that people act as though their garage is just as secure as the rest of their house when it's not. Because you're not going to, like, hear things the same way and you're not as careful. But so, at some point during the night, Damon got up for a snack and he noticed the alarm light was flashing again. And so, he realized that the glass sliding door that led to their backyard wasn't closed all the way. So, he closed it and went to bed. Right. Before Brenda had gotten home with her friends, he had let their Weimaraner, Layla, out into the backyard to go to the bathroom. So, I think he had just not shut it all the way. So, he had come near that door earlier, too. I read that in that they thought maybe some of the friends accidentally left it open. Yeah. So when they got back from the bar and they were hanging out with the friends, Brenda went and closed the bedroom doors of the kids just to make sure they didn't come down if they heard the, you know, friends and stuff. But they didn't check on the kids. They just closed the doors, which I imagine like the heaviness and the guilt that they have, like terrible, terrible. But so the next morning comes and the other kids come down for breakfast and Danielle doesn't. So Damon and Brenda call police around 939 when they realize that she's not there. Just the thought of that, you know, the father remembers putting her to bed. You don't think your kid's going to get up, you know, and not be in the room. They're secure at home. When we talk about disappearances, we always say they were getting off a bus. They were going somewhere. They were at a gas station. They were somewhere. Yeah. Outside of the home. The home is a safe place. And for this case, it wasn't. So the search for Danielle was one of the biggest recorded searches. Something that I found interesting when I was researching is the Laura Recovery Center assisted with the search. And we haven't covered this case yet, but we have hinted towards it in some of our Texas Killing Fields episode. But the Laura Recovery Center was founded by one of the Texas Killing Fields victims' parents, the Smithers. And Danielle's search was their first search outside of Texas. So a lot of tragedy came from the Texas Killing Fields. But also we had two different search related centers open due to those cases. And that always like hits me right in the fields because you take this terrible thing to happen to you and you've helped people because you've been through it and you're able to be such a, a zealous advocate because you've been that parent so sad, but it's so kind of the Smithers and Laura Miller's father to Miller to do this for people. So the police interviewed neighbors and discovered that one neighbor was not home during the morning of the disappearance, David Westerfield. He had taken his RV out for the weekend and he left around 9.50 in the morning, which would have been just a few minutes after Danielle's parents had called the police. He also had a really odd route and he went from like the desert to the beach and he had an elaborate story, which included a missing wallet at one time and him having to change his plans last minute. And then also that he had gotten stuck in the sand during one of the ventures. And there are people that can confirm that did indeed happen. I believe I even saw one report where they thought that he might have been talking to someone inside his RV, yet he claims that he traveled alone. It was discovered later that on the way home, which would have been on Monday, he dropped off some items to be cleaned at the dry cleaners. When he went in, he was only wearing a thin t-shirt and shorts with no shoes or socks. And what he dropped off were items like comforters, pillow covers, and a jacket. Which first off, that's really weird if someone's entering your establishment not wearing shoes. 
Yeah, and I saw a few different places too that he had frequented that dry cleaner and was normally very social and friendly. And this time he was barely talking and he wouldn't make eye contact, which is a little strange. Yeah, and he had a reason for that. So the police found it a little weird too, and they started a surveillance on him. They also obtained a search warrant. And inside his home, they found dog hair, which matched the Van Damme's family dog, Ella. Again, who's a Weimariner, so they have like a blue-grayish fur. Sample of the hair was plucked from Layla to compare the hair found in Westerfield's house. It was an exact match. Inside the motorhome, they also found Danielle's blood on the carpet, on the walls, and they also found her handprint and fingerprints on the cabinet above the bed in the RV. And Weimariner fur isn't very long either, so it's pretty easily missed, especially if it's on something dark. I could completely see how they could miss Layla's hair in the dark. So, a cadaver dog named CeeLo was brought to help with the investigation, and the cadaver dogs alerted to the first storage compartment behind the passenger's door. And this was an area where air from the inside of the motorhome would escape. And his handler, Jim Frazee, stated that this meant that there was a dead body inside the RV. And a really interesting distinction between a search and rescue dog and a cadaver dog is that cadaver dogs are trained to pick up on the smell of dead humans. They will not alert to the smell of live humans. You only bring in a cadaver dog if you're looking for a body. On February 22nd, after reviewing all the evidence, police arrest Westfield. In addition to the evidence that we had mentioned before, they also noticed a very strong smell of bleach from when he had tried to clean everything up. (laughs) Not suspicious at all. So sadly, on February 27th, volunteers found Danielle's body. She was nude and her body was partially decomposed. And it was just outside of San Diego. They had to use dental records to confirm her identity. They were unable to ascertain the cause of death because her body had been too decomposed. So in one of the articles I had read that I thought was just amazing timing is that some of the volunteers found the body and it was almost at the same time that someone was working on possibly making a deal with Westerfield to take the death penalty off the table if he were to lead them to the body. But the body had just been found, so that got to go away. Mm -hmm. During the searches of Westerfield's things, they took 13 bags of evidence I also read, and I haven't watched the episode, but this case also appeared on an episode of Animal Witness. The one thing that just grossed me out a lot was he had a bathroom window in the master bathroom, and it looked out into the Van Dam's backyard. And the screen was bent out as if someone had been pushing on it. And then also, gross detail, they found binoculars in one of the drawers of the master bedroom. And this is a neighbor that they had spoken to on multiple occasions. It wasn't just like a stranger. It was someone that I don't want to say they trusted. I don't know how far their relationship went outside of like Girl Scout cookies. But if the mother invited him to where they were hanging out, like there had to be some sort of relationship there. So disgusting. That is human garbage. So Joy Halverson of QuestGen Forensics Laboratory in Davis, their DNA expert that testified at Westfield's trial that the dog hair found in his RV and on the comforter and the garage trash can was a match to Layla's. And then that POS, Westerfield, he actually did receive the death sentence, which made me, I don't want to say happy, but it was just like he really didn't want it. And also that little girl really wanted to live. So I'm just happy he got what he deserved, right? He is currently, or at least the last article that I was able to find on him, he's on death row in San Quentin State Prison. Thankfully, he's a monster. So in July of 2012, David Guy's dismembered torso was found wrapped in a shower curtain. 
with his torso, there were eight cat hairs. Interesting. Law enforcement sent the cat hairs to be tested for mitochondrial DNA, which the mother passes down to her kittens. And the suspect, David Hilder, had a cat whose hairs were also tested. That cat's name was Tinker. So prosecutors wanted to show that it was rare for there to be a match, right? Because the defense's obvious rebuttal would be, it's cat hair. Like, how unique can it be, right? There's a scientist named John Wetton. And so they had created a database for dog DNA while they were working at Britain's Forensic Science Service. At this point, a database only existed for dogs. But Wetton suggested that they make a similar database for cats because cats shed too, baby. Hampshire law enforcement paid for blood tests of blood samples by British cats that would then be studied by a PhD student named Barbara Ottolini. She worked with veterinarians across the United Kingdom and tested 152 different cats. Only three samples came back with a match to the hairs on the curtain, and that confirmed how unusual it would be for another cat's mitochondrial DNA to match Tinker's. Hilder was convicted of and sentenced to life in prison. And so I want to think that this was like one of the big pieces of evidence against him. And I found that absolutely fascinating. And as an interesting note, as far as I'm aware, because I went down a rabbit hole because I found this fascinating. The United Kingdom is the only country that has a cat DNA database. And all I can think is like, I have five cats. If someone murders me, the odds of them getting out of my house without cat hair, it's not possible. Well, also, you're taking cat hair wherever you go. You're leaving a breadcrumb trail everywhere you go. <laughs> yes, I'm sprinkling it around. I'm like a little fairy, but with cat hair. <laughs> you know those um, mats, like the welcome mats that people are like, I hope you like dog hair. Now I need one that says like dog hair can solve the crime. So if you're like me, Amanda, you wondered, how do they know if that DNA is the same? Well, let me tell you. So there is a study done to figure out like what is the metric for which you determine if the DNA samples are a match, right? We do this with humans, right? We're like, you have to match these characteristics in order for it to be a match. There's a threshold, right? So scientists John M. Butler, Victor A. Stephen, Stephen O'Brien, and Marilyn Minotti Raymond figured out which DNA characteristics to compare for cats. And it's, again, much like what they compare in CODIS for humans. And so they found 11 different characteristics so that they could make a standard for what it means to be a match for cats. And it has the best name. Oh, I laughed so hard. It's called... (laughs) It's called Meowplex. And I love it. And so annoyingly, there is not a cat DNA database in the US, although the study was done in the US. So that's just in the UK. There is a dog CODIS, though. So there was a collaboration between the ASPCA, the Louisiana SPCA, the Humane Society of Missouri, and the researchers at the veterinary lab at UC Davis. What they have done is they've created the CODIS for dogs but it's used for dog fighting rings. So just like human DNA in CODIS is used to solve human crimes, dog DNA in dog CODIS is used to solve dog crimes. They're trying to build stronger cases for dog fighting. So what they'll do is when they find a dog fighting ring and they collect the dogs, they'll perform cheek swabs and put their DNA into the system. Then when they go into the venue and they find blood, they can then confirm whether that dog had been fighting. And it makes me so sad that we live in a world where that's a thing. No, it's horrific. It's those people are, I hate them more than I think anyone. The worst. And so I think it's so great that they've created something to like really strengthen those cases so that they're able Mm -hmm. to build better prosecutions that are stronger. I think it's interesting that that's the primary purpose of CODIS. Per the UC Davis Genetics Laboratory, 
Its establishment is solely for prosecuting criminal dogfighting cases, and only law enforcement professionals engaged in investigating dogfighting casework can contribute samples. So what that means is that they're not using it for humans, right? So they find dog hair on someone. It's not going into this database. So... We talked about FICAP in previous episodes, right, where they talk about all of the evidence and the MO that are recorded into as a national database. So you can say X, Y, Z. I would be very curious to see if they are then tracking animal hair found on victims to see if there's some correlation. Because if there's a murderer with a dog, he's leaving dog hair. And I think, yeah. that, like as we saw in these cases, it's a little piece of evidence, right? And it, it, it certainly, maybe it's not the only piece of evidence that's going to convict somebody, but it's going to help build a stronger case. So I find it fascinating that right. Dog CODIS doesn't branch out into helping solve human crimes, but I think it's still amazing and wonderful for what it does. Yeah. Interestingly, though, on their website, they also have a section where they're talking about like, other things they do. And so they say that they perform reviews of like DNA to see if it's a match, but they aren't going to store it in their system so that, say, something happens in Texas, somebody in you know New Jersey can't say, hey, my victim also has this Pomeranian's hair. That's really interesting. And it's, it's a couple pieces very sad. And I will real quick, off topic, but kind of just to make it a little bit better. One of my favorite dogs that I've ever met was rescued from a fighting ring and I got to help in the rehabilitation of him. And he is such a good boy and they can be reformed. And the terrible people went to jail and he had a happy ending. That makes me so sad and so happy. (laughs) And Amanda, I don't think you knew this about me. Everyone's going to learn this about me now. I cannot handle animal stories where things happen that are not good. That includes Homeward Bound. I cannot. I'm talking. My body is shaking. I'm sobbing so hard. Yeah. Well, that's the same thing with me with movies. So before (laughs) when movies were a thing and you could go to the movie theater, before I'd go see a movie that I knew had a pet in it or like a horror movie of any kind, I would have to go to doesthedogdie.com before I would even watch the movie. Oh my gosh, it is amazing. Every single movie that you can think of, people put, they they ask a, a number of questions like, is there a dead animal? Does a dog die? Is a dog abused? Is anything that could possibly happen? And people that have watched the movie can vote yes or no and then put explanations. So there's a number of movies that people have wanted me to see that I have vetoed because doesthedogdie.com has saved me from having to watch it. And that makes so much sense. And I'm so glad that that exists because I, I'm no good. I'm no good. I'm the same way. Anywho, Amanda, tell us about a time that a, that a parrot talked about something. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the, the bird-related ones were super interesting because I never really thought of birds having that much of a bond with their people, which is really silly for me to believe because I've met plenty of birds that were pets in family members' homes and friends' homes that were wonderful animals. And you could have like a little conversation with them, but I just, I'm not a bird person, so I didn't really think of it. But they're fantastic animals. So in 1993, 36-year-old Jane Gill was found dead in her bed, and she was found two days after she died. She had been smothered. Her business partner, Gary Rasp, had found her. Rasp's fiance, Annette Bridges, told the police that Rasp had told her that Jane was in love with him and he feigned feelings for her. Jane made Rasp the beneficiary of her $2 million life insurance policy. As a brief aside, nobody asked for it. I don't understand life insurance. If you don't have like giant debts to pay off that somebody else would be like in charge of or something like that. Like me with our house, for example, right? That's why I would do it. If I was a single person, I would not have life insurance. 
Well, you're like someone would still have to like bury you. I mean, outside of that, outside of my burial costs, I certainly wouldn't make it so that it would be very lucrative for me to die. It's sad, but I, I see. Yeah, they're wanting to take care of someone. It's just weird that she'd choose him. So Annette also said that Rasp had confessed to murdering her. However, Rasp said that Annette was making everything up because she thought he was cheating. So Jane's African gray parrot named Max was also found when they found her body. He was dehydrated and very hungry. And it it just makes me sad that the poor parrot had to sit there. So he went to a pet shop and the owner basically like nursed him back to health and made him feel better. And once Max was more comfortable, he began to repeat, Richard, no, no, no. Rasp's counsel wanted to question law enforcement about Max and what he had said, but the judge would not allow it. The first trial was deadlocked and Rasp was convicted at the retrial. Rasp appealed and the appeals court confirmed the conviction. I find that fascinating because I know that when I was looking at articles, I saw where people kept being like, defense attorney wants Parrot to take the stand. And he was like, that's not what I said. (laughs) I wanted to question law enforcement. I'm not a cat. I'm a human. Real quick, though. Rasp's name is Gary, not Richard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's why he wanted to bring it up because he was like, clearly there's Richard. But Rasp could have said that to the bird. Anybody could have said that to the bird. It could have been a television show. However, maybe the bird could have been right. Maybe it was another guy named Richard for all we know. There's another instance where a bird actually did help move the investigation along. It was the murder of Neelam Sharma, and she was killed at her home in February of 2014. The police were unable to make much headway on the case. They just couldn't really find who might have done it. Neelam's husband, Vijay, he started to notice that her parrot, Hercule, stopped eating and would seem very nervous and kind of different when their nephew's name was brought up in conversation or when he'd visit. So one article mentioned that the parrot even said, and I'm probably going to say this wrong because I don't know how to speak this language, but Usnimara Usinmara, which means he killed, he killed. So what happened is the husband, Vijay, he actually shared his suspicion with authorities. And then when they took the nephew aside to question him, he confessed. And basically what he said is his intention was to rob the home with another individual, but his aunt caught him while they were robbing the home. And he was really worried that she might recognize him. So he stabbed her. Jesus. Yeah. But the parrot remembered and basically told his dad who killed his mom. That's so sad. But what a good boy. I know. Speaking of good boys and girls, let's talk about cadaver dogs. So cadaver dogs are also known as human remains detection dogs, HDR. So again, as I mentioned earlier, they differ from search and rescue dogs because search and rescue dogs are trained to find living humans. There are at least 500 volunteer-led teams of cadaver dogs in the United States, but the number of law enforcement cadaver dogs is unknown. Oftentimes they are volunteer-owned dogs. They're not owned by police departments. So there is a type of dog training called scent work. And it's not just for cadaver dogs, it's for any working dog that has to locate a certain thing. In general, what they do is they teach the dog to find a particular scent. And the cool thing about it is anyone can do this with their dog. I'm not a fan of the AKC, I'll just say that out loud. However, they have a really neat step-by-step piece available online about how to teach scent work. And I personally have sent a couple dogs to go work with scents. So I've trained them up until that point and then given them over to another facility to take over for the scent work. 
But a lot of the time they they start with very distinct scents like birch and then they go from there. So one of the ones that I've got to work with personally between my lessons, they were taking scent work classes and he had just mastered being able to find the birch scent in a junkyard type setting. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really cool. And it was cool to see the videos of him working. I didn't physically get to go, but I got to see all the videos of when he passed some of his little tests. You were like, I know him. I know. I'm so proud of my boy. I love that. So cadaver dogs have about a 95% accuracy rate and they can smell human remains that are buried 15 feet underground or that are 30 meters underwater, which incredible. We already know that dogs have a much powerful sense of smell than humans do, but like... It's not even just people, though. They can determine where a bomb is. Or obviously, all of us have been to the airport at one time with the dogs walking around looking for drugs. It's amazing what their noses can do. Yeah, yeah. Cadaver dogs take 18 months to two years to train. They can tell the difference between human and animal remains in an area. Yes. And they can even detect residue scents, which... And residue scents are what's left when a body or a body part is put someplace and then it's moved. And fascinating that they could even tell that. Per Officer Paul Bryant of the Philadelphia Police Department, searches with cadaver dogs are much more efficient than with humans because they can cover space more quickly. And also, it's helpful because it saves police manpower and and honestly, volunteer manpower, right? Because they're going further. Yeah. Well, also... Think about Texas killing fields, right? Some of them were in like marshy areas where it was dangerous. So not saying to put the dog in danger, but if they can cover it faster, it's less time that something dangerous like a snake or whatever could get someone looking. Cadaver dogs alert to scent by laying down or sitting next to the scent that they found. I've also seen more little bark as well. It requires about a thousand hours of training, which is typically 18 months to two years. And they use positive reinforcement training techniques. That's the only way that I would ever recommend. You never do anything terrible to your dog to get them to do something for you. You have to reward them. Yeah. And any dog can be trained to be a cadaver dog, but oftentimes it's labs or shepherds. And then they're trained in trailing and air scenting, which is interesting. So one's following a scent on the ground while the other one is following like a scent on the breeze. I have a beagle mix and our cat would disappear in the house. And before we'd like shut doors and stuff, we would never want to like lock him in a room. And so we taught the beagle to find his kitty kitty. And you could say, where's your kitty kitty? And he would tell us what room he's in. Doesn't your dog also like sass them if they're being bad? Yes. So absolutely. If you have a cat that's awful and wants to claw things, what you do instead of having to reprimand him yourself is you teach your dog to reprimand your cat. So when we adopted our cat, he was a baby. And of course, you have to teach them not to claw at different things. They're allowed to claw on certain things, but not, you know, your couch. So we taught Toby, here's the cat scratch. He needs to go get him. He doesn't hurt him. He just runs at him and barks. So now the cat will not go near the couch when Toby's in the room because Toby will reprimand him. (laughs) And Toby is like on high alert. He's the sheriff of your house. Definitely the sheriff. I love him. So in order to train a cadaver dog, one of the things they start is they they have chemicals that mimic the scent of decomposing human flesh. And they have it at different stages of decomp. So like fresh body, a little bit old, skeletal remains. So they learn like all the different types. But they also like once they get a little further, they'll have actual pieces of humans. So they'll have bones, teeth, liposuction material, blood and placenta. If you have a baby beforehand, I would say, you can reach out to a cadaver dog training center to see if you can donate your placenta to help train cadaver dogs. That's super cool. Yeah. It's a little, it's a little macabre. I don't know. It's helping. 
But it's also like, what a great way to use that. Yeah. I mean, why not? I, I guess I just don't see anything wrong with it. Some people do eat it and or like bury it with a tree or something like that. I know. I'd rather it maybe help a missing family find closure. Yeah. And it makes sense. Like liposuction material. I mean, bones, maybe if someone lost a limb. I guess that one's a little weird. But teeth, people lose their teeth all the time. Yeah. You could do a simple blood draw. Yeah. Seems fine to me. No one's dying for that. Yeah. And we've also we've talked about some cases in the past where cadaver dogs have been used. So we obviously earlier in the episode, we talked about Danielle Van Damme and the dog Stilo that was used to help her. In our Sinister Love episode about Laurie Vallow and Chad Daybell, we talked about the cadaver dogs being used to search on the Daybell property. I'm not sure if we mentioned it in the episode, but they were used. In our New Year's Same Me, Kenneth McDuff episode, cadaver dogs were used to search for Edna, one of his first victims, but they actually weren't able to find her there, but they were used. I saw in a, a few different places that for our Anne Hill Kid episode for the Burnt River compound, that they had been used to search that, but they didn't find anything, which isn't necessarily surprising because it was a very large, expansive area. And we didn't really get into how the remains were disposed of for the people who had died there. And then, you know, our favorite hero, Tim Miller, when he is helping with finding missing people with his organization EquiSearch, he also uses cadaver dogs. Dogs are great. Dogs are great, but they're also they're also it's like a giant thing that I didn't even really know about. Like I was like I'd heard the term, but I, I guess I didn't realize how much training and effort was behind it. Which it makes sense, right? Because they're they're like it's a very particular scent, and you want them to be accurate, so you want to train them well. But I just thought it's it's an amazing thing to take the time and energy to do to train a dog to do this and to be one of these volunteers that helps do this. Well, it's fascinating what all a dog can do, right? They can help find bodies. They can help find people that are still alive. They can help find drugs, bombs, even bed bugs. So dogs are incredible. And training is so cool because you can discover different things that your dog is capable of. Yeah. I say that with a bias, though. But yeah, Amanda is a dog trainer, by the way, in case you couldn't pick up on that (laughs) from the rest of the episode. So I have a special place in my heart for dogs and all the incredible things that they're capable of. All right. Well, that's all we've got for you. So yeah, go uh, pet your animals, roll in their fur, let that dog hair (laughs) stay on your clothes. It's okay. It could help potentially find a killer, right? Yeah. Let that dog and cat hair fly. Just sprinkle it around liberally everywhere you go and just know that it will help you. And if you're a killer, now you know. (laughs) Don't kill people with pets. And this is another reason why you should adopt a pet. Yeah, everyone should have a dog or a cat or any sort of animal if you're allergic. I do like my reptiles too. If you have any interesting true crime animal stories, feel free to share them with us. And with that, have a good week. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at True Creeps Pod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at True Creeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 